This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, go. Whoa, how good was Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. This is your podcast of music discovery. Obviously, we can't talk, or just me. (laughs) Uh, We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts. And we are so glad that you chose to spend the next hour or so with us. And we hope, at the very least, we will entertain you and maybe give you an album to listen to that you haven't before, or a new spin on one you already have. Yeah. Besides this podcast, there are two others in our family. Uh, Audio Judo does jazz, which is a uh, which is ramping up to its second season, uh, and Throughline, which is a very detailed look at a concept of a particular record, whether intended or not. You can find both of those on Pantheon as well, or wherever podcasts are podcasts. Besides those three choices that we have for you, we also have additional content that can only be found on our Patreon account. Kyle, how would they go about that? Well, if you go to patreon.com forward slash audio judo, you can sign up. We have three tiers. The lowest tier is called the Shout It Out Loud tier, and for that, uh, it is one of whatever your local currency is, dollar, pound, euro, kwatlu, rupee, whatever, per month, and for that, you get a shout out at the end of every episode. For $5 a month, you can join the front row seats tier. For that, you get the shout out at the end of every episode, two-day early access to full episodes, access to bonus mini episodes called judo chops and some occasional little bits that we cut out of other episodes for whatever reason if you really want to help out the podcast you can jump up to the backstage past here that is twenty dollars a month for that you get the shout out by name two-day early access to the podcast episodes access to the judo chops little bonus bits that we've cut out plus after three months at that tier you get a very special gift from matthew and myself and the big one after a year at this tier you can co-host an episode of audio judo with us that does only activate once and it does take a year at that level of patronage in order to activate it but we will do whatever episode whatever album you guys want to pick for an episode yes so this will be the last album based episode for 2022 we do have our annual holiday episode coming up and our top 10 albums of 2022 left to go but this is the last deep dive on one singular album yep and kyle has decided to go for it apparently and pick the number one ranked album on the rolling stone list of top 500 albums of all time what are we talking about today kyle today we're talking about what's going on by marvin gay this is a whopper of an oh album. Oh my god, what an amazing album this is. Yeah. It is it is a mind blower. The fact that I had I, I had never heard this album uh, from beginning to end. I'd heard a few yeah. of the songs. Never heard this album from beginning to end until earlier this year. 
And while, you know, I'm a bit conflicted about the whole number one album of all time, I think mm. I think that that's really tough when you get down to like the last 20 or so yeah. to really choose and decide what the parameters are to determine something like that. But it certainly does deserve to be in that conversation. It is both an intense record and a groovy, soulful record, both. Yeah. Topics that it covers range from the Vietnam War to the environment to drug abuse and poverty. The number of accolades that this album has garnered in the ensuing 50 years oh my God. are legion. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of information to unpack here. But for all the accolades, it only sold about a half a million copies mm -hmm. as a record, which means there are a ton of people out there that might not necessarily be familiar with this record. And that's where we come in. Yeah. But before we talk about the record, you want to talk about Marvin Gaye or sure. you want to talk about the record? Yeah, let's talk about Marvin Gaye. First. Right. Uh, Marvin Pence Gaye Jr. was born on April 2nd, 1939 in Washington, D.C. to Marvin Gaye Sr. and Alberta Gaye. Note, at that time, it was spelled without the E. So it was just G-A-Y. Yeah, it was an area called Simple City mm -hmm. is where he was born, yeah. He lived in public housing there, and it was basically described as a slum. Alleyways between buildings were filled with shacks where people lived. Most of the buildings were run down and ready to fall apart. Marvin had two sisters, uh, Jeanne and Ziola, and one brother, Frankie. He also had two half-brothers, Michael Cooper, his mother's son from a previous relationship, and Antoine Carey Gay, the result of his father's adultery. Mm -hmm. uh, he sang at the local church his family attended starting at four years old. His childhood was incredibly sad-sounding. His father would beat him frequently for minor things, and he later said that if it hadn't been for the consolation of his mother who encouraged his singing, he would have probably committed suicide before he was 12 years yeah, old. Yeah, his sister said that he was whipped repeatedly from mm, yeah. uh, the age of seven well into his teenage years. And uh, as we will see later on, that relationship never truly improved Yeah, as uh, what happened in the very end. Yeah. There were longtime rumors as well that his father was gay, uh, but his sister Ziola uh, set the record straight, so to speak, when she said that, uh, when she was being interviewed about a play she wrote titled My Brother Marvin for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in March 2013, she said, quote, our father wasn't gay, he was a cross-dresser. That and a lot more is revealed in the show. Definitely somebody who had some issues that he, he left unresolved, and as a result, I mean, just was sounds like a terrible person. His dad? Yeah. Yeah. Marvin sounds like a great person. His father sounds like a terrible his, person. His father was not a good person. No. Yeah. Uh, Marvin began taking singing seriously when he got into junior, into junior high, when he joined the Randall Junior High Glee Club. He also attended uh, Cardoza High School, where he joined several doo-wop vocal groups, including the DC Tones and the Dippers. Yeah, he was a bit of a star there. Yeah. Uh, sadly, his father, uh, his relationship with his father got even worse in high school, and there were he spent several weeks or months out on the street living on his own because his father would kick him out of the house, and then he would be, he'd return, and then make up for a little while, and then his father would get angry and hit him and kick him out of the house again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1956, to get out of that cycle, 17-year-old Marvin Gaye dropped out of high school and enlisted in the United States Air Force as a basic airman. Uh, he did not enjoy having to perform all the menial tasks that airmen have to do, so he faked mental illness and was discharged shortly afterwards. Yeah, he hated it. Yeah. Uh, after that, Marvin and his friend Reese Palmer formed the vocal quartet The Marquise. They sang around the D.C. area and began working with Bo Diddley, who signed them to a Columbia subsidiary, Oki Records. Oki Records, yeah. They had a single called Wyatt Earp that didn't really go anywhere, and record label executive uh, Harvey Fuqua uh, then hired the group to do basically be his backing band. Mm -hmm. They changed their name to Harvey and the New Moon Glows, and they relocated to Chicago. And they recorded a few singles and did some backup singing work for Chuck Berry in this time, but again, nothing really took off yet. Uh, in 1960, the group broke up. Uh, Marvin and Fuqua moved to Detroit and signed with Tri-Fi Records as session musicians. In a twist of fate, Marvin was actually hired to sing at Motown President Barry Gordy's house. Mr. Barry Gordy. Mr. Barry Gordy. <laughs> During a holiday party in December 1960, Gordy was so impressed that he bought Marvin's contract from Harvey Fuqua and signed Marvin to Motown's Tamala subsidiary. Subsidiary. Tamla. Tamla. Tamla Records, yeah. Totally butchered that whole thing. Tamala subsidiary. Tam yeah. It was at this time that Marvin added the E to his last name, both to distance himself from his father and to silence some rumors about his sexuality. Uh, Marvin was performing as a jazz and standards musician, having no interest whatsoever at R&B in this point. Uh, he released several singles and an album that flopped during this period. He also worked as a session musician and writer for lots of different Motown acts. Yep. Uh, he had a few singles on the charts, but 1963's Pride and Joy became his first top 10 single. Also in 1963, he married Barry Gordy's sister, Anna Gordy. Mm -hmm. uh, he would release more singles and a few albums, but he began singing duets with various female artists at this time, and he, which is what really began to rocket him towards fame. It was in this period that he began performing with Tammy Terrell on a series of duets. 
Uh, they were all very successful, and they toured around the country performing on the Chitlin circuit, which I think we've talked about a couple of times before. Yep. Uh, it was, uh, at the time, uh, a lot of performance spaces were still segregated, uh, and so the Chitlin circuit was uh, performance spaces where black artists could perform, in some cases legally, and in some cases by choice uh, of the owners of the performance spaces. Right. Uh, in October 1967, Tammy collapsed into Marvin's arms during a performance in Farmville, Virginia. It was shortly after discovered that she had a malignant brain tumor. Tammy and Marvin continued to record, but it took a real toll on Marvin to see Tammy struggle so much. They began to become disillusioned with the music industry as a whole. Yeah. In uh, 19... Just take over for you here. Uh, In October 1968, uh, Marvin Gaye sang the national anthem during the World Series for the Detroit Tigers, who were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. And God damn it, I wish I would have been there because that would have been awesome. And you have to realize exactly what was happening in Detroit right at that moment. The city was enraptured with that Tiger team, but it was also hip deep in the racial strains still reverberating from the riots of 67 that had lit Detroit on fire. It was a very sensitive time. And to have him sing that anthem during that series must have been epic and wonderful to see. Just because of how crappy the previous few years had been for the city. Yeah. Late in 68, his recording of I Heard It Through the Grapevine became his first number one song, also reaching the top in multiple countries. Uh, It would eventually sell over 4 million copies. But as we find time and time again, Kyle, Gay felt that he didn't deserve the success. The imposter syndrome pops up again and again. He was feeling like Barry Gordy's puppet and his wife's puppet, who, oh yeah, as you mentioned, was Barry Gordy's sister. Yeah. Two more singles would reach the top 10 in early 1969, and his album MPG, Marvin Pence Gay, would become the first number one album, his first number one album on the R&B chart. His marriage was falling apart. He had a growing dependency on cocaine. Mm -hmm. He had serious trouble with the IRS. He didn't really want to be on Motown anymore. So while in his apartment in Detroit, he tried to kill himself with a handgun Mm -hmm. and was only stopped by Barry Gordy's father, who happened to intervene at the last second. Don't know what he was doing there. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, he was there and and thank God that he was. Yeah. But then Tammy Terrell later that year. March 16th, 1970. Dies from brain cancer. Gay attended the funeral, but began a pretty serious bout of depression and wandering. He tried out for the Detroit Lions football team around this time and ended up befriending several of the players. Including Mel Farr and Lem Barney, who we'll come back to in a little bit. Yeah. And as far as the music was concerned, uh, Motown went ahead and released his next album, That's the Way Love Is, in January 70. But Gay refused to promote it and refused to perform on stage for the next several years. And while in seclusion... He dropped his typical squeaky clean image and started growing a beard, wearing sweatsuits, being more casual. Yeah. On June 1st, 1970, Gay entered the Motown Studios to record the album we're going to talk about today, What's Going On. The Hitsville, USA Studios. Right, recorded. Right. Two houses right next to one another, which basically comprised two recording studios. Yeah. Recorded for the most part in and around Detroit, including the two main Motown studios, which I'm going to come back to later. It represented a major shift in the focus of Motown Records. This is a circular record, as the opening themes are repeated at the end, and the songs flow from one into the other. Well, the fact that it's an album, too. Motown had done albums before, but that was not their bread and butter. Their bread and butter was singles. and Get someone in the studio. Exactly. Spit out a song. Get out for sale. Sell a lot of copies. Rinse and repeat. Yeah. And a lot of people say that this is the first true Motown album. And I would fully agree with them. And there are a lot of stories, all of which are refuted by Barry Gordy. <laughs> of course. That Gordy wanted nothing to do with the album. And oh, was yeah. pressured to release it because Gay said he would never record anything for him again unless he did. Yeah. So this was actually inspired by uh, some ideas and riffs from uh, Ronaldo Obi Benson of the Four Tops, who had seen firsthand the police brutality that had taken place at Berkeley during an anti-war protest. And like you said, Marvin took a completely different approach to this song, uh, writing a lot of it himself instead of relying on assistance from other Motown songwriters and musicians. And uh, again, uh, on hearing it, Barry Gordy supposedly said it was too political for the radio and also supposedly said, quote, it was the worst thing he'd ever heard in his life. See, I don't believe he said that. Yeah. But in Gordy's defense, I'm not one to usually back Barry Gordy. (laughs) He was worried that people weren't ready for a protest record like this and one that would specifically alienate part of the record buying base. At this point, too, it was only the song. It was only the song, What's Going On. And so they were still pushing this as a single. 
And, and like you said, Marvin basically went on strike and said, okay, well, I'm not going to perform. I'm not going to do anything else until you release this song. Right. He did, however, during that time, work on a lot of the music that would become this album, What's Going On, as well as his next album, Let's Get It On. He recorded in various studios. He wrote new music. Right. Barry Gordy, by this time, had moved out to California. Uh, he was kind of taking it a little easy at this point. And um, thankfully, uh, A&R man Harry Bulk and sales executive Barney Ailes, both from Motown, pushed to release this album behind Barry Gordy's back. They pressed 100,000 copies of it and sent it to record stores on January 20th, 1971. I'm sorry, this is the single, excuse me. I think yeah. I said the album. Single. And they sent that to uh, record stores on January 20th, 1971. Sales were so successful within a week, they had ordered 100,000 more copies. Single became a hit. It was Motown's fastest selling single at the time. Peaked at number one on the Hot Soul Singles chart and number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Mm. Stunned by that news, Barry Gordy drove to Marvin's house to discuss making a complete album, stating Marvin could do what he wanted with with his music if he finished the record within 30 days. (laughs) So fast forward, what, six months? The album was released on May 21st, 1971. Yeah. And if you stop and look at the timeline for a second... His last release was almost 18 months prior, album-wise. In 1971, this is an eternity mm-hmm. in music. Things were happening so fast. Music was changing. Politics was changing. And with that long of a gestation period, he could have easily missed the boat. Yeah. And as I get deeper into the research of this record, some weird things pop up. The album got to number six on the album charts. Apparently stayed there in the top 100 for a year. Yeah. But according to some evidence, it sold 2 million copies in the first 12 months, which now makes me wonder why is it only ever certified gold? Yeah. And then I read that it sold 1.6 million copies post-1991 or the sound scan era. Mm -hmm. So what is it? I would like to know what's going on with what's going on. But either way, it was a popular enough record. It had several hit singles, but this seemed very much to be a statement piece from Gay, a setting apart, kind of a rebirth, so to speak. And it worked critically even back then. It was adored by some, not by others, though. So while Time Magazine and other publications lauded the record, our old pal, (laughs) who never seems to quite get it, Mr. Robert Christigau, called it uh, a Barry Gordy product, which it wasn't, and the overuse of strings on the record, the lowest form of movie soundtrack dreck. Just so everyone is clear, again, when I say our old pal, I'm referring to the music critic Robert Christigau, who I will never stop calling out for his constant misses on records that are vitally important to culture and records that sell well in spite of his critical viewpoint on them. But if you really want to know what critics think about this record, go to the Wikipedia page for this album, oh my scroll God. down to the section labeled Accolades, and tell me that it is not universally yeah. loved. My favorite from that, David Katz writing for the BBC Music. Uh, he said the album was, quote, one of the greatest albums of all time and nothing short of a master. He then goes on to compare it to Miles Davis's Kind of Blue by saying, quote, its non-standard musical arrangements, which heralded a new sound at the time, gives it a chilling edge that ultimately underscores its gravity with subtle orchestral enhancements offset by percolating congas expertly layered above James Jamerson's bubbling bass. Yeah. Beautiful. Right? He didn't need to use words in there that I don't know. Yeah. Unlike the other guy. I don't feel like he had a thesaurus <laughs> sitting open like, yes, yes. yes What's yes. another word for sucks? Uh, ah, yes, yes, yes. yes. Dreck. Let's dreck. use the word ah, dreck. Yes. <laughs> They'll not, they yeah. won't know this word. They'll have to look it up. Yeah. Like you said earlier, the list of lists that rank this album very high up would take up a whole episode for us to go over. It's crazy long. Rolling Stone, number one, 500 greatest albums of all time on the 2020 update. Yeah. Used to be number six, moved up to number one. Uh, and I think that that's definitely a, it'll float around. It'll float around, but it'll, I think it'll be top 20 for a very long time. Like and, I said, uh, yeah. Once yeah. you get inside that number, I don't know how you, exactly. you say that this one is noticeably better than this one. Yeah. yeah you're, it gets like it Those gets 20 hard. records, you're like, those are the best 20 records of all time. Scramble them, put them in a hat, pull one out. Yeah. That's number one, whatever. Uh, number one on the Guardian's list of the 100 best albums ever from 1987, and number one on NME's all-time top 100 albums from 1985. It's still at number 23 on the 2003 edition. So all that music, I mean, it's, it's continuous. It's not something that, you know, retrospectively people are necessarily looking back at and being like, oh no, now it's a great album. At the time, well, at the time, you know, when Marvin Gaye sadly passed away in the 80s. It was number one on a lot of people's albums. In the 90s, it was still number one. In the 2000s, it was still very highly ranked. And now today, 2020-ish, it's still number one, which is amazing. Right? Album art or you got something before that? The only other thing I want to say really quick is uh, 
we are not going to be able to go over every artist that played on this album. That's we're going to mention a few by name. Marvin Gaye did fight very hard. And this is one of the first albums that Motown directly credits as many people as possible that performed on this album. There are a couple of omissions and we'll get to those in the notes later on. But I, we would have a five hour episode if we were to go over all of the amazing musicians that played on this. Mm -hmm. But please do understand we're not intentionally overlooking that. I know that it was very important to Marvin Gaye that they be mentioned on here. And I think that it's important to say that they are all very important to the sound of this album, but we, just, we, we can't go over them. It's just too much for us. But please go look them up yourselves after you've listened to the album, find more of their music. Uh, and like I said, I'm sure we'll pick out a few people uh, uh, for notable moments. But uh, yeah, I feel bad that we can't go over everybody, but I don't want to make a five hour episode. No, no, it's too much. Yeah. So the cover, it's a picture of Marvin wearing a high collared black raincoat. The design work was shared by two of Motown's in-house graphic designers, Catherine Marking and Alana Coughlin, uh, with art direction by Curtis McNair. Curtis McNair. Yeah. That guy. Huh. What a story this guy has. Born in Detroit in 32, marched for civil rights in the 40s, helped integrate the U.S. Army in the 50s, was one of the first black people hired at the Chrysler corporate headquarters in the 60s, and then from 68 to 72 was the principal art designer for Motown, designing over 100 pieces for Smokey Robinson, Diana <laughs> Ross, Stevie Wonder, and of course Marvin Gaye. Unbelievable career yeah, and dude. life. Just a life. The life well-lived. That that was awesome. The photograph was taken by uh, James Hendon, and it was actually one of the last shots that they took out of this whole photo session. Curtis McNair chose this shot, but his boss almost rejected it, feeling he could see too far up Marvin's nose. <laughs> uh, McNair fought for it and asked Marvin what he thought, to which Marvin Gaye replied, quote, this is definitely the cover right here. Yeah, just has him looking in the distance, snow starting to collect on his head. Yeah. I love this cover because, because it's such a beautifully composed picture that was probably a complete and total accident. Probably just one of a hundred pictures. Oh, yeah. And just snapping, snapping, snapping. And that that picture is just, it's uh, dynamic. It's iconic. It's it's perfect for what the record is. Yeah. It's also one of the first, it is the first Gatefold album to be produced by Motown, mm. uh, even though it was just a single disc. Uh, this was due to the inclusion of a family photo montage on the inner sleeve with a special emphasis on the children in the Gay slash Gordon family. Uh, Marvin Gaye insisted on having the photo collage as well as space for the lyrics on the album. If you lay the album open next to the Beatles' Sgt. Peppers, both albums share the exact same layout. Oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> weird, right? Uh, also, it's the first Motown album to feature the names like I said, of all the people who played on it, including the Detroit Symphony Orchestra's string section. It was also the first record to give recognition to the Funk Brothers, who laid down the rhythm tracks, uh, and was uh, the band of musicians largely responsible for the famous Motown sound. Mm -hmm. It was also the beginning of a long road of recognition for all of those studio musicians who helped Motown become very famous. Yeah. Despite his insistence on giving everyone their credits, the names of the studio engineers were left off the album credits by accident. Uh, Marvin Gaye simply forgot as he was submitting the credits over the phone uh, about to board a flight uh, to L.A. The engineers were Steve Smith, Ken Sands, Cal Harris, Bob Olson, uh, Joe Atkinson, James Green, Sam Ross, Lawrence Miles, and Art Stewart. So now they get a little bit more recognition. That's good. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else about the album or should we yeah. take a quick break? Yeah. So as far as my relationship with Marvin Gaye ah. is concerned, uh, I don't believe I became aware of him until about 19. 1982, when his song Sexual Healing was released. Mm. Uh, I was 10 and just and started- you needed some sexual healing? Hell yeah, I was 10. Uh, I was just starting to listen to pop music and stuff on the radio. Uh, and that summer, my family took a camping trip all through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for about three weeks. That meant a lot of hours in the car. <laughs> and the radio was on. And this song was one of the biggest hits of that period. So I heard it a lot. I didn't really understand it, but it was good. And I wouldn't hear his name again until 1984, mm. when he was tragically- killed when he was shot by his own father after trying to intervene in a domestic issue with his mom and dad. It's an awful story. Do you have more on this, Kyle? Yeah. Like, I kind of left that, it alone. And I, I honestly, I, it's such a sad story. You you basically have just covered everything that I was going to cover okay. about it. It, it. I have a note about it later on, but really it's, it's a very, very sad end to a very sad story of his relationship with his father in that he literally, his mother and father were having some kind of an argument. He was at the house. He came out of his bedroom, argued with his father a little bit, went back in his bedroom. His dad came in and shot him twice, once in the shoulder, once in the chest. Yeah, for some reason was only charged with voluntary manslaughter. Yeah. And, and, and not homicide. He yeah. left the argument to go track down Marvin and shoot him in the chest. Yeah. Like that sounds premeditated to me. Yeah. I still feel, you know, obviously there's a lot surrounding this. Yeah. 
I feel like there's a lot that has never come out. Probably. And that was the first time I think I ever heard active passion used as a defense. Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense. He went and found him. Yeah. Like, it, he's just pissed. Yeah. It's a very sad ending to a very wonderful life. And yeah. yeah well, and, you, and again, kind of just like the Lennon situation, like what could have been yeah. in oh, the man. ensuing years. And was Lennon 80 or 84? 80. Okay. I was about to say, did they both die in the no, same was, year? Yeah, it was 80, December oh, okay. 8th or December 8th, 1980, I think. Yeah. Man. It was, uh, but you, you think of all the things that could have been made in the ensuing years musically <sighs> or, or, or not even musically, just, yeah. just being able to advocate for things that we need people to advocate for now and just gone. Tragic. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to cover is the kind of uh, impact that Motown Records had on that city mm. from its inception until it moved to L.A. in 1972. It was extremely vital during that time. Uh, the racial tension in Detroit was simmering, always. And for a while, Motown seemed to bridge that gap and give everyone a common thing to be proud of, although in 67, that all came crashing down. But I think the music that emanated from that place helped to put some of it back together again. And in the ensuing years, it is still something we all point back to when we talk about Detroit as our hometown. What's amazing is that the studios he recorded this record in, both Hitsville, which is known as Studio A, and the Upstairs Studio, which is known as Studio B, are both located in this small, nondescript two-story home at 2648 West Grand Boulevard. Without the paint that's there right now and the sign out front for the Motown Museum, they would be pretty plain houses in the new center area of town. Yeah. Uh, it's about a mile from the campus of Wayne State University, where my wife Heather went to school, a couple blocks from the Henry Ford Hospital. But everybody knows about it. We all know about it. All of us have driven past it countless times. And it always makes me wonder how such a plain looking place could produce such amazing songs. And, you know, the place never matters. It's all those amazingly talented people that gave so much of themselves there. And I... As a native Detroiter, will always be proud of that history. And I hope that anyone out there listening knows, if you ever find yourself in the Motor City for any length of time, carve out some time to go to Hitsville, USA, and take a look around the museum. You will not be disappointed. It is actually really fabulous what they've done with it. So That's cool. That's what I want to say about it. I saw a couple of pictures from inside. It looks like it's a really cool museum. It is. And it's it was fascinating to me. I had no idea it was just a house. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. No, there's no fence around it no gate it's right you, from the sidewalk you just walk right up to yeah. it and and in the front doors is where the museum is it's it's really cool well should we take a quick break and we'll come back and do the uh, track by track certainly matthew What's going on? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh. I'm not sure if we've uh, mentioned this up to this point, oh. but if we haven't, to recap, this record is a concept record. Yes, it is. Written from the perspective of, according to Marvin anyway, his brother, who mm -hmm. had returned from the Vietnam War to a country he didn't seem to recognize anymore, and one that really didn't recognize him anymore either. His brother had been writing to him from Vietnam, and he realized that he wanted to write about what was really happening in the world and not write about, quote, inconsequential stuff. I think you mentioned earlier, the song was written, for the most part, by another Motown legend, Obi Benson from The Four Tops. Benson and The Four Tops were playing a concert in Berkeley on May 15, 1969, when they witnessed police brutality in People's Park by a bunch of anti-war protesters. And this day specifically became known as Bloody Thursday. One person died, one person was blinded, many seriously injured, when then-Governor Ronald Reagan unleashed the police on a bunch of protesting college students. And you know how violent these fuckers can be. These college students Ugh. with their yes. signs and their... Hippie. Hippie pants. Beatniks. Ugh. Ugh. It was a gross display so of government power, but that seemed to be the way it was back then. If you can't calm them down, shoot them. Lovely. Yeah. So Benson was pissed, logically, and began to ask the questions. What's happening here, man? Why are they attacking kids in our own streets? Why are we sending kids off to die? Benson turned to songwriter Al Cleveland, told him what he saw, and they crafted a song from that experience. And Benson said that people told him it was a protest song. And he said, no, it's a song about love. I'm just wondering out loud. What is going on? And I think that's it's a yeah. fair question, right? Yeah. Uh, in 1970, he presented the song to Gay, who had provided the song with a new melody, revised it a little, added some of his own lyrics, and Gay wanted to then turn 
hand the song off to another group, the the originals. But Benson convinced him to record it as his own. Thankfully, he did. Right? The song is characterized by the laid-back atmosphere, right? The opening is played over a mock conversation with a bunch of guys that sound like they're just hanging out. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that yeah. uh, Marvin, uh, when he tried out for the Detroit Lions, became friends with uh, Mel Farr and Lem Barney. Yes. Uh, that's them talking a little bit in yes. the background at the beginning, and they also sing backup during parts of this Correct. song. Mel Farr, who would end up running the most successful chain of used car lots in the oh. whole city. Wow. His commercials were always on and they were always hilarious. <laughs> Shopping at Mel Far would get you a far better deal. <laughs> and he used to wear a cape. I love it. In I all of his play. commercials, he used to wear a cape. And then he'd yell, and they can have fly either. And he would take off out of the screen. <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> and the other uh, voice was provided, as you said, by legendary Lions player, uh, Lem Barney, who everybody in Detroit knows Lem Barney. He's a Detroit legend. Just, a, just a great player. Lyrically, though, the song isn't anything really groundbreaking. Simple cry for peace and understanding. But it's the way that it's delivered that makes it so magical. It's smooth, not desperate. It's plaintive, but not protesting. It's conversational, not attacking. One of my favorite parts is the chorus where the line is picket lines. In the first chorus, the echo in the back is saying sister. And in the second chorus, it's saying brother. Little touches like that usually go unnoticed and are just wonderful to discover when you really kind of break down the song. Musically, it maintains that smoothness. Opens with a soprano saxophone part played by Eli Fontaine, a musician that Gay would subsequently fire from the rest of the record, <laughs> but credit and keep his part. And he was one of the Motown house band's musicians and just so, so good, like they all were. Yeah, they had such a talent pool oh. associated around Motown around this time. It's it's unbelievable. Ridiculous. Not only the, the work that came out of it, but just the the amount of musicality that existed there that could have led to more had they let it. Oh, hell yeah. It, it boggles my mind. It's like, why didn't you work these people harder and make them, I guess not make them, let them, give them the tools to make more music yeah. and not be like, no, no, you're going to be a background player in this. You're going to, you're going to play bass on a couple of albums. Like, I don't know. Barry Gordy, man. Yeah. So, the bass part, uh, like it is on the whole album, is just wonderful to listen to. A bassist on this track and the Motown house bass player, James Jamerson, allegedly laid down the bass part for this song as he lay on the floor yeah. from drinking too much Metaxa. Metaxa is a Greek spirit made from blending three types of mold wines together and allowing <laughs> them to ferment <laughs> even longer. <laughs> and, Sounds delicious. <laughs> one of the more unique things also from this song is Gay's double-tracked yeah. vocal lines. Apparently, Gay asked for his vocal leads that he had recorded to be played at the same time so he could determine which one he wanted to use for the single, the high part or the low part. Instead, engineer Kenneth Sands blended the two together, and Gay loved it so much that he began to use it all the time, sometimes utilizing three par lead parts mixed together. Yeah. Happy accidents, man. Right? Happened all the time in the studio. It's great. The intro to the song has some uh, guys talking back and forth, like I said earlier. That's Mel Farr, Lim Barney, and a couple other people. But uh, the term, what's going on, is what they used to use to uh, greet each other. And uh, the beginning of the song sounds like this. <laughs> There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today yeah. Oh man, it's, it's so smooth Yeah, there's also a weird little thing here If you listen to the percussion section really carefully You hear a weird sound That is Marvin beating on a cardboard box to accentuate the congas being played by Chet Forrest. Oh, nice. Uh, he just, it just, it's this weird little sound. And when you hear it isolated, there's a video on YouTube where they've isolated it. It's, it's like, oh yeah, that is somebody beating on a cardboard box. <laughs> but it's just in, when you mix it with everything else, it sounds great. I love those little touches. Right. Commercially, like we said earlier, this would sell over 2 million copies of the single alone. Uh, and maybe that's the number I saw earlier. Maybe. And someone mixed up their fact checking. I think that makes a little more sense. So it got to number one on the R&B chart, stayed there for five weeks, got to number two on the Billboard Top 100, held off by a Temptations song the first week and a Three Dog Night song the next week, Joy to the World, which is fine. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, it also received two Grammy nominations and regularly appears on lists of the best songs of all time. So yeah, I'd say that's a pretty effective opener, opening song. Right? <laughs> What's happening, brother? We're doing a podcast. That's what's happening. Oh, no, that's the name name of the next song. Oh, I get it. (laughs) The song is, again, dedicated to Marvin's brother, Frankie, who spent three years fighting in Vietnam. It's another anti-war song. It also discusses, more specifically, kind of the overarching theme of this whole album. uh, What happens socially to young people who ship off to war when they come back? Everything in pop culture, in life, in their whole, everything they knew before they left, they've become disconnected from it. And how do they reconnect to it? Can they reconnect to it? And this, this aspect question what's happening and it continues almost directly from the last song oh yeah that song flows directly into this one and it has a very similar sound to it Mm -hmm. to begin with there's also no chorus at all no just four verses and the strings are a little thicker other than that the songs are very similar strings were uh, arranged and directed by david van de pitt who was directing an assortment of folks from the detroit symphony orchestra who gay had become quite fond of during his darker periods of depression he used to try and get inspired by going to watch their performances at Orchestra Hall, which is only about two and a half miles from Hitsville, USA. So it's right down the road. It's a lush song, you know, in tone and meaning. It's it's just very lush. And there's there's a lot going on. Sounds a little bit like this. Hey baby, what you know good? I'm just getting back, but you knew I would. War is hell. When will it end? When will people start getting together again? Are things really getting better? Like the newspapers said. What else is new, my friend? Besides what I read. Can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. One of my favorite little accentuations in this song is, I, I don't, don't know what instrument it is. It might be a triangle. It might be a little bell or something. But there are times when you hear it in the background mirroring what, what Marvin is singing. So if he's like, da, 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 the bell is like, ding, 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 ding. Mm. And then there's other times where it takes off on its own. And so he'll sing something that's like, da, 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 da. And then it's like, do, 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 do. Interesting. It's, it's very interesting. And I I had listened to this four or five times and getting ready for this, had never noticed it, never noticed it. And then a, f- a couple of days ago when I was finalizing my notes, I was listening to it with headphones and I was like, oh yeah, that literally follows his lyrics sometimes directly. And then other times it's like a second voice where it's responding to his lyrics. Interesting. It's a very cool little like accent in there. To go back and listen to that again. Yeah. It, it, point and counterpoint. There point you go. and counterpoint. Yeah. Quick note on the Vietnam War, you know. Yeah. Society as a whole saw that as a huge injustice, mostly because people didn't really know or understand the reasons why the U.S. got involved in it in the first place. And then we shipped off, you know, thousands and thousands of young people and 58,220 people died. Uh, You know, their lives were, and these were all people under the age of 30. I mean, most of them were under the age of 30. The attention towards both servicemen and those in charge had turned very negative at the time as the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam. It didn't help that the images of the war had, for really the first time ever, been broadcast worldwide on television in basically real time. It was a a very tragic time in in the history of America, in the history of the world, and it set the tone for the next, the coming decades worth of, you know, how we think about war, how we think about the loss of life in those situations. And to me, this song is very very much a, with its anti-war message, it's not a song like, hey, we shouldn't be protecting ourselves. We shouldn't be fighting. It is a song of, hey, we need to love one another instead. And I like that message a lot more than just being like, fuck war. Right. It's a song about like, hey, we should love each other and work this out. And that's primarily the whole premise of the record. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Flying high in the friendly sky. For this track, Gay decided to borrow the uh, United Airlines tagline of flying the friendly skies. Right. For his ever-increasing drug use. Right. Although this song appears to be specifically about heroin. Yes. And supposedly Marvin Gaye never really did heroin. See, and okay, so I'm calling bullshit then. Because he's a regular pot smoker at Mm -hmm. this point. Everybody knows that. He ended up getting into freebasing cocaine in the late 70s. This song is undeniably about heroin. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lyrics, I go crazy when I can't find it. In the morning, I'll be all right, my friend. But soon the night will bring the pains, the pain, the awful pain. Yeah. 
I mean, I've smoked a lot of grass in my lifetime and I don't ever remember waking up like that, <laughs> desperate to find it and in pain because I don't have it. That sounds like serious withdrawal symptoms. And while I enjoyed being high, I don't think I ever felt like I was flying. Again, that seems like the euphoric sensation that I have heard repeatedly attributed to heroin or some other opiate like mm -hmm. that. I feel like he probably was. Yeah. And it's been one of those things where repeatedly doing research for this, you find people saying, oh, well, he never did heroin. He was never, he never did heroin or he tried heroin and didn't like it and did a lot of cocaine. And it's like, how do you write a song like this that sounds so personal and so, yeah, you know, like the visuals and things that he describes are all from the first person. A yeah, very firsthand experience. Yeah. Yeah. How do you write that song without having at least done a little bit? And I don't know. And that maybe it was a temporary thing and he, he was able to break, you know, his right. heroin addiction and, and move on. Or maybe he, you know, whatever. But it's interesting to me that so many of the interviews that I saw with people that were around him were like, oh, he never did heroin. That song's about doing heroin, but he never did heroin. Yeah. Mm. Very weird. He did do PCP. <laughs> That's documented. Yeah. Uh, like you said, cocaine. He took a bunch of pills. Yeah. Smoked a lot of pot. Yeah. Uh, and drank really heavily. Yeah. But uh, yeah, nobody is willing but to- But why do they skip heroin. around heroin yeah, like it's, that? It's funny to me that I believe it was his sister that even said, oh no, he was addicted to PCP for a while. And it's like- yeah, That's okay. Angel that's dust fine, is but, all right, but, but, heroin, but no heroin? Like, no, no. Yeah, don't use the horse barbiturate. Yeah. yeah. That's all right. There's also a great story about uh, them. Uh, there was a percussion room in the studio. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was sealed off so the percussion didn't pick up on all the other microphones. And uh, Marvin and several of the musicians would go in there to hotbox it. <clears throat> Two of the percussionists were not into smoking pot, but all the other musicians would go in, hotbox the percussion room, and then leave. And then they would go in to play their instruments and get contact high because they were in the room <laughs> filled with, you know, pot smoke. And then they'd come out and be like, man, we don't feel really good. And they'd be like, well, go outside and then go outside and sober up a little bit. But then Marvin and the musicians go, would go back and hot box it again. And they come back in and go in the room and get, oh, we feel crappy again. So That's a uh, nice story. Yeah. Flying, so, flying high in the friendly skies uh, uh, sounds a little bit like this. So this song is completely credited to Marvin Gaye. And what is so, so unique about a lot of this record is the lack of choruses, which is what set music on its ear, I think, and why I think Barry Gordy had as much apprehension as he did. So you think about Motown. Mm -hmm. Motown was built on the singable qualities of their songs. The Supremes, Mr. Postman, The Miracles, My Girl. People wanted to sing along. And a lot of this record is very freeform in nature, where Gaye's voice is just dancing around with these kind of very indiscriminate melodies, which it times are hard to follow and hard to repeat. Yeah. I can see where Gordy's fear would come in. How do you sell this to a public that wants to dance and sing? For Christ's sake, man, don't make them think. <laughs> they won't buy things that they have to think through. And that explains the success of the lead track, because the lead track is singable yeah. and catchy. But some of the others, while they're brilliant songs, and they absolutely are, they just don't fly with the public because it's hard to follow. This isn't music that you get up and dance to. This is music you sit down and you put a record on and you listen to it. And very little, I mean, not much has changed in 51 years. We look at the most popular songs right now and there's songs people want to dance to. Yeah. That hasn't changed. And I think I could see where Barry Gordy would be like from a business model perspective, holy shit, I need to sell records. But as a statement piece, Gay is saying, this is who I am now. This is who I'm becoming. And I want to, I want to make a statement. It's, I think there were, there was a big shift going on at this point. Yeah. And I, I totally get it. But anyway. Yeah. Would you save the children, Matthew? Eh, you know. Probably not. You yeah. just run them over with a car. Yeah, if they're okay. Let them drown they're when the ocean levels rise. They're, they're fine. You're a monster, Matthew. 
Still, no choruses. No. Still no memorable hook line or much to hang on to. This continues in the thought process of someone coming home from Vietnam and, Vietnam and looking around wondering who will take care of the children when the government disregards them so little to send them off the war, off to war to die. Yeah. Right? It's also a, a, a early song about the environment and the, the oh, there's changes. There's a couple. That, yeah, there's a couple on this album, uh, but this was one of the earlier ones that, uh, you know, this album's 52 years old now. So 52 years ago, Marvin Gaye was saying like, hey, the environment is kind of going to shit. What are we going to do about that? Right. And in 52 years, not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> Music is played uh, by the Funk Brothers, mm-hmm. which is the house band for Motown. But the best thing about this song is how he structured it, even without a chorus. It's call and response, but done in a super cool way. He first does a spoken word reading of each line and then sings back that same line with limited editing right after, but in no discernible melody that you can follow. And you can see more and more that this is very much a statement piece from him. I think he is casting the structure of Motown to the wind and saying this is going to live and die based on my voice voice, not a repeatable chorus. And it worked. It works so well because that voice, the more I listened to it for this episode and I listened to a lot of his stuff getting <laughs> prepped for this, it's like butter. Yeah. It, it'll melt you. It's so rich, so smooth. And he could dominate without having the chorus. He dominated that this record. And the last verse, technically speaking, I guess, it's technically the last verse, is devastating to listen to, the, the words to it. But who really cares? Who's willing to try to save our world, to save our sweet world, to save a world that is destined to die. And that question, like so many, left unresolved. Yeah. Right? Who's going to save it? At this point, no one, really. Maybe Al Gore. What a bummer. Maybe Al Gore will save it. Sounds like this. But who really cares? Who's willing to try? Yeah. To save our world, yeah. To save our sweet world, save a world that is destined to die. This at the end. Depressing song, but I like it. It's such it's it's so good. It is. The next song isn't. No. (laughs) God is love. It's a joyous song. Yeah. It's a song influenced uh, by Marvin's religious roots and aimed directly at his father, who was, uh, as we've already discussed, a complete asshole, layabout, uh, and also apparently a church minister. Yeah, he was a preacher. Uh, yeah. Guy cheated on his wife, beat his children. Uh, apparently, he was also maybe a cross-dresser. Sounds like a pretty good Republican to me. <laughs> Bazing! Bazing! Commentary! Hey, oh! Lyrics in this song are kind of ironic because they interchange the use of father, meaning God, and father referring to his dad. Ramping us up into controversial territory. Maybe I am. (laughs) Uh, And it sounds a little bit like this. God is my friend. Jesus is my friend. He made this world for us to live in. And gave us Everything and all he has of us is we give each other love. Oh, yeah, don't go and talk about my father. Cause God is my friend. Jesus is my friend. So a song dedicated to his father in heaven and his earthly father, a man who would later end up killing him. Mm-hmm. But I think Gay was definitely trying to renew his spirituality at this point. It's very evident on this record. Musically, again, lack of chorus, but he's getting closer as this is much more singable. Not quite church singable, mm. but for sure has a defined melody to it. Uh, the ever-present strings eat up the space where guitars would normally be, and the bass is superb. But the sound that cuts through the whole thing, and Randy was was hitting right on my point. The sound that cuts through the whole song are the congas and bongos. Yeah. Played so expertly by Eddie Bongo Brown. <laughs> he played with The Temptations, Stevie Wonder, just about anyone going through Motown. And there's just a perfect groove to his playing. I could listen to that all day long, him play those bongos. It's yeah. so cool. It's a really cool way to like, it pulls you through the whole song. 
that percussion sound of the bongos just absolutely it like I don't want to say it drags the song along because that makes it sound bad, but it does drag the entire song along with it. I love it. I dig it. Yeah. Uh, the original version, uh, 45 version of what's going on, the yeah. single had this as its B side, but it's a slower, more string laden version of it. it. It sounds a little different. I like this version better personally, just because it's a little yeah. bit more upbeat, a little more upbeat, but uh, that one is also worth a listen. Uh, and the title of this is from uh, the Bible, 1 John 4, mm-hmm. apparently. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, ultimately, it does suggest in this song that love can conquer hate. But given the subject of the song and what we now know about the way that Marvin died, yeah, it's very sad. That kind of sucks. Yeah. Mercy, mercy me, the ecology. The ecology. This is the other of the instantly recognizable songs from this record. Mm-hmm. One that I know that I've heard hundreds of times in movies and just generally in pop culture. Uh, and while many of the other songs call for peace, for understanding, for love, this song is a call for taking care of the environment, something that was not commonly on people's lists in the early 1970s. Yeah. Uh, there's a part of the movie Anchorman that flies by most people, but I noticed it one of the first times that I saw it. So the entire news team is walking through the San Diego park eating hot dogs or something and they finish and they just chuck their wrappers on the ground they all collectively just drop their garbage on the ground not even looking for a trash can and that's kind of what i think that arrow was like there was no regard for the environment or trash or cigarette butts you just drop it on the ground. You just, just whatever. And this song was calling that out. Like, hey. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe we shouldn't do this maybe, anymore. Maybe not do this anymore. Marvin actually said of this in his biography, Divided Soul, quote, when we don't follow Jesus's example and turn to exploitation and greed, we destroy ourselves. That's what Mercy, Mercy Me is about. Huh. He was on, I mean, he was on a spiritual quest, I think. Very much so. This was the second million selling single from this record, mm-hmm. following the title track. Reached number four on the charts. Two on the R&B charts. It's a beautifully played song as well. Smooth as can be. Wonderful saxophone solo by Wild Bill Moore. Ooh, yeah. But again, no choruses. You think there are choruses because each verse starts with the refrain of Mercy, Mercy, Me. But nope, they're all verses. Every single one. Yeah, and it sounds like this. All things and what they used to be not Oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas Fish full of mercury. Oh, oh, mercy, mercy, me. All things ain't what they used to be. Radiation underground and in the sky. Animals and birds who live nearby us die. Oh, mercy, mercy, me. Weirdly, 20 years after this album came out, there was a music video for this song that was released by Motown Records, probably in a cash grab in Mm -hmm. 1981, featuring appearances by celebrities like Big Daddy Kane, Bobby Brown, Diana Ross, David Bowie, and Wesley Snipes. Uh, That may have been the height of Wesley Snipes' power. Snipes' snipe eye. Yes, it was. It was. A, it's a very weird music video. I don't even recommend going to watch it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's also uh, this song has a mellotron in it towards the end. Can't go wrong, right? Can't go wrong with the mellotron. It also has the only real fade out on this entire album because this was originally the end of side A. And so there's a some funky oh, little bit is. of beat and a Mellotron. And then it kind of like has a nice long fade out. There is a fade out. You're yeah. right. It's it's the only it's the only one on this album as far as I know. So yeah. Flip the record over. Yes, please do. Right on. It's a jam song to start out the B side. Right with, on. With a bunch of jazz undertones. It's got a really heavy like Latin and funk influences. And it sounds like this.
I would say, so I know that I have uh, given the flute a lot of shit recently. <laughs> uh, I find it very pleasant in this song. Oh, do you now? I do. And uh, apparently, so the, the, the rumor for years was that the flute here was played by sax player Thomas Beans Bowles, uh, who was called into the studio by Marvin in the middle of the night to perform. But that's not true. No? The flute was played by a teenage girl named Dana Hartwick. What? Yeah. She was 13 when she joined Motown as a singer and flutist. Uh, she, a flautist. A flautist. Uh, she was recruited from an amateur Detroit Park band. Uh, she recorded some flute parts during the day, but Marvin called her back to the studio that night to perform solo on the track. He wanted a jazzier sound. Uh, she was classically trained, though. She'd never played jazz, but she gave it her best shot. After the session, she felt horrible and thought she had done a horrible job and was very unhappy with her playing. She didn't listen to the track until years later when a friend asked her about it. She was very pleasantly surprised when she finally heard it and is happy now to say, I did that. That's ironic because this was one of the first and only songs not recorded in Detroit. Mm-hmm. It was recorded at Sound Factory in Los Angeles. And I feel that's easily spottable because it has a, a, a Latin flair. It's a yeah. distinctly different, fl- and they're all different musicians. Like it's not and James Jamerson on bass anymore. It's Bob Babbitt. It's like a whole different slew. I saw that as well. And I was trying to figure out if he was, they had recorded it in Los Angeles and he was mixing it in Detroit. Yeah. And that's why he called her in like, no, no, I need a flute player. I feel like Come that. in and do this. That- or if he, if at the time, because I, think it says here she was 13 when she joined Motown. I'm wondering if she was a little older at this point and maybe she was in LA with Motown and so she recorded there. But they didn't uh, move to but, Mo- Motown didn't move till 72. Okay, so that was after this. So yeah. it's it's definitely it's a weird mystery. I know. And, and it doesn't the timeline I could never quite figure out how it fit together. Somebody has to know. But somebody out there does know and if you do email us info at audiojudo.com. I want to know what the hell happened. So it's the longest song on the records. Clock, it is. Clocks in at a little over seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Again, no choruses, seven long verses, a couple of bridges, at least one instrumental break. And for how good this album is, this song has my favorite lyrical sections on it. So that section, some of us were born with money to spend. Some of us were born for races to win. Some of us are aware that it's good for us to care. Some of us feel the icy wind of poverty blowing in the air. To me, it feels like he's bringing the whole concept full circle here, at least lyrically. Yeah. Uh, This is the song where he brings it on home. Even the title of the song is reminiscent of the title song. Remember how casual that opening is with everyone saying right on, you know, everyone's saying hello. Well, that's the name of this song, Right On. Yeah. There you go. And uh, I love this song. I know it goes on for seven plus minutes, but it's a jam. It's fun. I love it when a song is so good, it's long, but it doesn't feel long. It doesn't long. feel and long. And this is definitely one of those. I've listened to it a dozen times in the last six months, maybe. And every time I'm like, wow, that was seven and a half minutes. And I didn't even realize didn't it. Didn't even realize it. Yeah. That's cool. Holy Holy. Wait, holy, holy. Thank you. Yes. I almost said holy moly, which would not Whoa, have been the name well, of this. Holy. This is another emotional gospel plea from Gay. And I guess I never realized how spiritual this album really is. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it was soulful, well-regarded, but I am surprised uh, by how much of it is based in his spirituality. Uh, it's very much an evangelical song with lyrics about proclaiming salvation and spreading the news. And again, very free form. Not a lot of structure to this song. It's interesting. Fits in with the vibe of the record. I'm not sure that I would seek this song out. Out specifically, mm. but listening to it uh, as a song cycle totally makes sense. Yeah. Marvin, uh, a man next to my own heart, apparently loves wordplay. Ah. And up until right before this album re- was released, this was called Holy Holy, H-O-L-Y-H-O-L-Y. He then changed it to Holy Holy, W-H-O-L-Y, H-O-L-Y. <laughs> so that's fun. Uh, it also, this song Holy. has a very strong uh, string sound to it. Yeah. The string arrangements were done by David Van De Pitt, performed by the string section of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Orchestra, and Van de Pitt's arrangements can be found on this whole album, and they give it such a distinct sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, his contribution to the album was such that he was given credit on the album cover, which was another first in Motown history. Wow. Uh, and it sounds like this. Get together, one another. Jesus. Jesus left a long time ago. Says 
said he would return. He left us a book to believe in. In it we've got a lot to learn. Oh, oh, well, it is a very religious song. It's one of the few that I find very pleasant as well. It doesn't feel like it's overwhelmingly like pushing an agenda or anything. I think that it's a very calming song, and I think that the string arrangements really elevate it to another level. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. It's a fair assessment. Inner city blues. Make me want to holler. <laughs> they do, though. <laughs> Just suck. Uh, the song that closes out the album is the one that deals most straightforward with the ghettos and the poverty in the inner city. And on an album that is filled with some optimism, it takes a darker turn on this song for sure. Uh, read the lyrics, you know why. Crime is increasing. Trigger happy policing. Panic is spreading. God knows where we're heading. Now, here we are, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Tell me what exactly has changed. What I think is super interesting, this album is a big circle. It starts and ends in the same spot, and we'll come back around to that in just yeah. a second here, how it really does that. But it's interesting to me, in late 60s, early 70s, one of the lines that really sticks out is he talks about uh, how the government is doing uh, building rockets and doing moonshots instead of helping poor people. Yeah. And, you know, we're saying, okay, nothing's changed in 50 years. We're literally doing another moonshot right now. We just now. launched we Artemis. Just, while we're recording this, they just launched the Artemis mission and it just circled the moon a couple of times. It's costing hundreds of billions of dollars. I personally think that it's very important for science to continue progressing. But at the same time- People are starving. People are still like. starving. There's all kinds of unrest in the world. There's a war going on in Europe right now. There's all kinds of horrible things happening. And it's like, nothing has changed. No. Nothing has changed in 52 years years yeah. since Marvin Gaye was singing about this. Nothing has changed. Yeah, the lyrics are just as applicable applicable then as they are right now. Yeah. And that is so disappointing. It is very disappointing. And you can hear his frustration then because it hadn't been changing then. Yeah. And he was aware of it and it still hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like this. In 1998, co-writer James Nix Jr. recalled of this, quote, Marvin had a good tune, sort of blues-like, but didn't have any words for it. We started putting some stuff in there about how rough things were around town. We laughed about putting lyrics in about high taxes because both of us owed a lot. And we talked about how the government would send guys to the moon, but not help folks in the ghetto. But we still didn't have a name or really a good idea of the song. Then I was home reading the paper one morning and I saw the headline that said something about the inner city of Detroit. And I said, damn, that's it. Inner city blues. So that's where the name came from. Great story. Right? So wonderful, right. soulful, laid back. And like you said, the song finishes with a reprise mm -hmm. of the beginning of the record, truly bringing it full circle. Yeah, a nice bookend to it. I guess I, I may have misspoken earlier. I think this does also fade out a little bit. I think so. Now that I think about it, I think yeah. this fades out to kind of wrap up this end of the uh, uh, record or this side of the record, excuse me. But uh, yeah, that's what's going on. Yeah, it is as important an album as I have been led to believe. Yeah. And maybe not necessarily for its stunning musicality or its insightful lyrics, but really how it turned music on its head. Yeah. At that particular moment. Especially if nothing else, it literally threw a wrench into the works at Motown and suddenly they were like, oh, we can do this. Yeah. We can continue to make singles and hits that way, but we can also make deep concept albums and expand and we can sign artists well, like led, Stevie Wonder. Right. Led and, directly to Talking yeah, Book and yeah. Songs in the Key of Life and stuff like that. Like, yeah. like real full albums that weren't just a single. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's 
a huge point. If you don't take anything else away from this album, take away that point, that it was an inflection point in the history of music, that it allowed one of the great studios of the time that was elevating black musicians to a level where the public could actually see them. It pivoted them and opened a different doorway for them to be able to say, no, we can keep doing that. And we can actually allow them to make these huge concept albums to make deeper, more meaningful music. That's um, so many things that happened starting with this album have become cornerstones of, of music in the 20th century and the 21st century. Yeah. Like I said, at the outset, we could debate all day about what the greatest record of all time really is. Uh, but this deserves to be in the conversation. And I'm super glad you picked it, Kyle. Well, lovely choice to close out the year. Yeah. If you want to tell us what you think about what's going on, either what's going on in the world or what's going on in the record. Yeah. You can get a hold of us at uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, Instagram at audio underscore judo, or you can go ahead and email us at info at audio judo.com. And uh, we get those pretty quick and we'll respond to you as quick as we can. And uh, do we have a list of uh, We do. Shout out to our patrons uh, from the Shouted Out Loud tier. Simon C., our UK consultant, uh, still our only Shouted Out Loud tier patron, but welcome. Uh, front row seats patrons at Aaron P., Darlene W., and Michael A. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. Backstage Pass patrons, Christian S., David W., Michael S., Scott K., and Kristen K., new supporter. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Uh, it means that we keep to, we get to keep doing this and not have to uh, figure out how to pay for it on our own. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, take care, everybody. Happy yeah. New Year if we don't talk to you again beforehand. Right. We have episodes coming up from Steve Ray Vaughn, our annual top 10 albums of the year, and our annual holiday episode and coming up in the next few months, our 100th episode. So that'll be oh, fun. That's right. But until then, we will talk to you again in two weeks, everybody. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.